In service to his nation, our 35th president, John F. Kennedy, addressed our nation on June 11th, 1963, with a very important message that goes like this. Here's an excerpt for you. 11th, 1963. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This afternoon, following a series of threats and defiant statements, the presence of Alabama National Guardsmen was required on the University of Alabama to carry out the final and unequivocal order of the United States District Court of the Northern District of Alabama. That order called for the admission of two clearly qualified young Alabama residents who happened to have been born Negro. That they were admitted peacefully on the campus is due in good measure to the conduct of the students at the University of Alabama who met uh, their responsibilities in a uh, constructive way. I hope that every American, regardless of where he lives, will stop and examine his conscience about this and other related incidents. This nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds. It was founded on the principle that all men are created equal and that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. Today's Eagle, Haas, and Hound podcast will feature the Haas, John F. Kennedy, and the Eagle Attribute of Service. I'll also be covering at least the first part of this book, 400 Souls by Kendi and Blaine. So, as always, please like and subscribe and provide your comments, and I hope you enjoy today's podcast. I will put this into two parts so that I can cover this big book. This part one will be in this episode, and part two will be in the following episode next week. This is the Eagle, Haas, and Hound podcast. Welcome. Created by Eagle Impact and Johnny Tilt Productions, this podcast honors and respects the service veterans and spouses, the social integrity heroes of our past, and the common American mutt. That's right, you. With this podcast, we provide a platform for respect. We respect the Eagle. That is, the individual with a service background, the sworn hero from the uniform who has risked it all for our protection. Plus, we respect and honor the Haas. That is, the social integrity leader from our past, such as Franklin, Ulysses, Lincoln, and others from our American history. Finally, we respect you, the Hound, as we discuss the topics of the day, listening and learning together to improve our work, home, and family. Each week, we will bring you value in the form of knowledge and perspective, just like you heard, we are all in this together, so get ready for another excellent show. It's the Eagle, Haas, and Hound podcast. Race and the Enlightenment by Dorothy E. Roberts. And uh, you see this book, 400 Souls? In the 1700s, Europe experienced an intellectual movement known as the Age of Enlightenment that set the course of scientific theory and methods for the next three centuries. Leading thinkers embraced reason over superstition and shifted the basis of their conclusions about the universe from religious beliefs to secular science, giving science the ultimate authority over truth and knowledge. In many respects, the Enlightenment advanced ways of understanding the natural world and human behavior, but it was also the period when the modern scientific concept of race as a natural category was installed. So, uh, I've been reading this book. This is uh, 400 Souls uh, by Kendi and Blaine. 
And uh, these, these two individuals, uh, Ibram, Kendi, and Keisha Blaine, uh, they actually are the editors of the book, but there's really 90 different authors. There's several little small stories in here that are really cool, and they talk about from the perspective, mostly from the perspective of uh, individuals who are either African-American or, or within the community um, about the happenings of, of people who came here as African-American slaves in the beginning from 1619 when they stepped off of that, that ship. Um, one of the first things they point out is how in our history in America, in school, we're taught about the Mayflower, okay? We're taught about the pilgrims coming over and there's uh, plenty of happiness to be thankful about and how wonderful it was and uh, all the cooperation and the love and the joy and, you know, giving thanks for the, the crops and all that good stuff and being free to, to, uh, to basically uh, do your religion as you, as you choose. That was one of the things that brought people to the new world was the freedom uh, to practice their religion. Uh, which which the uh, the Puritans or the you know the the initial ones that came over in fact everybody that had had that opportunity um, but what wasn't talked about was the the ship called the White Lion which landed in uh, the year earlier in 1620 of course is the uh, the year of the Mayflower but 1619 is the year when the White Lion came ashore down in Virginia and offloaded 20 or so what they called Negroes who came from Africa and uh, that was the start of their presence here in North America to uh, provide the cheap labor to make our country grow. And unfortunately, uh, uh, time and time again, uh, they were taken advantage of. And this book goes through it uh, from the beginning, from that 1619, uh, through every step, every, you know, a few, a few years period. It talks about this time in the 1600s and that time in the 1600s. It gets all the way to the 1700s and, you know, little periods of time. And, this one that I started to read from you f to you from is from 1749 until 1754. So that's how much I've gotten into this book so far. And I haven't been reading it long, but it, it's actually a pretty good book. And you, what's nice about it for me anyway, I don't know about you, but uh, those long, long chapters, they, they're hard to read. But these short little chapters are great. I like them a lot. They're easy to sit down and say, yeah, I can get through three or four pages and then, um, you know, get the point of what's been said and so these stories they're telling about how um you know the the colonies were starting and they they started with uh you know people who were trying to do something new uh but they they were still uh subjects to the crown you know whether it was england or even france or spain uh they had to be loyal subjects and they had to go about trying to uh start start their new life here and battle Everything from the weather to the diseases to the natives that uh, sometimes they got into conflicts with the Native Americans, um, deadly conflicts. And, uh, you know, just trying to survive, uh, they would resort to things so bad as slavery. And uh, even to go as, as far as to take slavery in the context of religion and say, oh yeah, well, there's the master and the slave and it's in the scriptures. And even, uh, I'm sure we're going to get even deeper into that of how religious leaders like you know the preachers and the uh they they would take advantage of uh of of, of all of their flock and uh they would preach that that uh yep it's okay for slavery and they they would have their own slaves these preachers 
Um, something I found interesting too is, you know, the, the African Americans, they would they say, hey, wait a minute, you know, you have these Christians, right? Uh, if you want to be Christian, you got to be baptized. So uh, you, you, they, they figured out pretty, pretty quickly that uh, Christians were treated with lots of respect. And to be a Christian, you got to be baptized. And so, uh, you know, African Americans would, uh, they would have their children baptized. And uh, when they were baptized, they were expecting that their children would then be uh, given, you know, respect and be, be free. In fact, uh, they were, you, you couldn't have a Christian who wasn't free. And, uh, well, that didn't last long, okay, uh, because they, they made laws, okay? They started making laws. Uh, the, the colony of Virginia was the was the one who led the charge in making these laws and uh you know one law after another you know uh you know about mixing of the races you know if, if uh, uh an african-american got pregnant and uh the the person who impregnated her was uh euro-american they made it so that the african-american had to be the one punished and uh, the euro-american no punishment okay and uh then of course they made laws that said you can't they can't mix and you know, on and on and on. There's many, many things, and it's 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 about not only the uh, the religion, but it's of course about the law. Uh, it's about enforcing uh, education, in uh, enforcing the 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 new rules of of, of doing business and commerce. Basically, uh, step by step, making new rules that that continue to uh, oppress. The, the, the slaves, and even be, if they became free, they weren't necessarily free because of all these rules. And, and it also talks about how uh, skin color started to be such a major uh, differentiator and uh, lumping everybody who came from uh, the Europe area, no matter if they were Norwegian or, or English or uh, French or Dutch or Italian or whatever, they started lumping them into one category white okay and then of course anybody coming from africa got gotten lumped into another category black okay so here you have this uh evil notion of calling someone by their skin color uh beginning during this colony colonization and this book goes into pretty good detail of how that developed um the thing that i find interesting is that this kind of of in-depth understanding is not taught in schools i'll you know I don't think it's taught. If you can show me a school, a public school, that takes time to actually go through from the perspective of, of those who, who were oppressed, okay, to tell the history of our country instead of just telling it the way that it's been curated to tell. So too many times our, our books, they're curated by uh, individuals who are considered experts and uh, time, time over time over time over time. These uh, cura curators or experts, uh, you know, they only, they sift through it and they only tell you what they want you to know. And it becomes some kind of a myth, something that's not really true, okay? And so our kids are brought up being indoctrinated with a certain myth of Americanism that uh, uh, it's time that the truth be told, okay? And I'm happy that this book has been put out. I'm going to continue reading it. I hope you do. Um... I also uh, have started to discover some things, uh, you know, looking into our president, uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, he, I, I would call him a hoss, okay? 
and uh, you know you've heard me talking other times. I don't I don't agree with uh, his politics. Okay, I don't agree with that party because I believe that party has caused the damage of our country, uh, the racist damage. But the other party, they haven't stopped it. They haven't been effective in stopping it. So there's plenty of blame to go for both parties. But this guy uh, Kennedy, uh, he he was with the Democrat ticket. And uh, before that, he was he served our country. Okay, he was in the United States Navy. Um, so he came from Massachusetts. He ended up going to Harvard. Uh, graduated from Harvard in um, I think cum laude. He graduated in uh, 1940. So he's a young man. And uh, of course, World War II breaks out, and he he goes into the Navy as an ensign. Okay, so as an officer, he went into the Navy, and uh, eventually found himself uh, being in charge of a PT boat. Uh, down in the Pacific, okay, so uh, he saw action, okay, here he was, the commanding officer, he had a small crew, it was a small boat, I think he only had maybe 12 souls on board, including himself and his executive officer, so the the small PT boat 109 uh, was on patrol, being quiet, and here comes this Japanese ship, and boom, I don't think the Japanese ship even saw him, they were so quiet, but basically T-boned them and uh, broke the vessel and a couple of men lost their lives. Uh, and uh, one thing too that that uh, our hero today being John F. Kennedy, he being an eagle, okay, he actually went into the service even though he had a bad back. You know, it didn't stop him from, from providing his service and uh, I respect him for that. Um, and even though he had a bad back and he got tossed around in that big accident, he was able to... Uh, to get his troops together, and uh, what they had to do is swim ashore. They had to like swim three miles at night, and some of his guys were hurt so bad. One of them, uh, John F. Kennedy uh, himself, grabbed grabbed with a strap through his teeth and swam for three miles to to pull him to safety. Okay, so this is something that uh, John F. Kennedy did. This is the kind of service that we have. Uh, the service hero we're talking about. Um, you know, he got he got some Navy awards for that. Uh, and uh, good for him. He also got a Purple Heart for his injuries. Um, so when the, when the war was over, he, at, in 1946, was, uh, was elected to Congress. Okay, so as a young man, he got to go to Congress, uh, started being, uh, you know, a congressman, and then later a senator. And uh, at the same time, uh, his rival, where uh, he, he squared off with this guy uh, named Richard Nixon, they squared off to uh, to go against each other for the presidential election of 1960, and uh, it turns out that was a super super close race, um, and and barely barely uh, John F. Kennedy won that race and became president, became our 35th president, and uh, so here's here's a guy John F. Kennedy, president of the United States, a young man. He was a very young man, and having had not that much experience, being young having a lot of people above him. In fact, uh, we know that his, uh, his, the person he chose to be his running mate was uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, Lyndon had so much more experience than, than the, the younger uh, John F. Kennedy, but John F. Kennedy was the president and Lyndon Baines Johnson was his vice president. In fact, they squared off in the primaries, but JFK prevailed and, and he asked Johnson to be his running mate. So, um, so here you have a a relatively inexperienced president and a super experienced vice president matching up. Sounds like uh, the, the Obama-Biden ticket, okay? Anyway, um, we had uh, John F. Kennedy stepping in there, and uh, you heard part of that speech that I played for you earlier 
um, I'm planning on putting the full speech. It was maybe 13 minutes at the end of this podcast so you can hear it. Um, it really says a lot. It, it, it answers so many of the questions that I have about why was 1963 so important and what, what happened in 1963 that just changed our nation. Um, you know, beginning in 1963, so, okay, I, I just talked about the election of 1960 and the young John F. Kennedy, and, you know, it takes a little while for someone to gain their... Um, I, I don't know, their momentum, you know, especially a, a, a young president. I'm sure he had sights on trying to go for a second term. And, uh, well, he was pretty popular, okay? America was in love with him. Um, he had to go through the, uh, the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was a, a really, really tough test in 1962. Um, the, of course, you know, they had midterm elections in 1962. And it looks like the Democrats prevailed. He, luckily for him... He had a full Democratic Congress. He had Democratic senators, Democratic Republican. So he had all, all the keys to the kingdom that he could do with what he wanted. Um, but here's the trick, okay? He was from the North. He was from Massachusetts. And uh, Northern Democrats were a little different than Southern Democrats, but they're all Democrats. But anyway, I feel like the Northern Democrats were uh, complicit with the Southern Democrats to try to be one force of... Of, so they could win elections, right? And well, they were pretty good at it. And you, you know, they, there was five presidents in a row, five, 20 years in a row, four of those being won by uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then, of course, Truman kicks in and gets another term out of that. So there were five solid Democrat terms that got us through the Great Depression and, and uh, World War II and the Korean War. And then there was eight years of Eisenhower. I covered him a couple of episodes ago. And he was a Republican, but during Eisenhower's time, most of the time, both of his uh, congressional houses, uh, Senate and House, were both Democrat, except for the first two years. But anyway, he didn't get so much done, okay? We had a huge Democrat majority um, in all those years. And then, of course, the next two uh, administrations, the JFK administration, and then following by John Johnson, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Democrat, Democrats, Democrat presidential, Democrat executive branch, but also mostly Democrat uh, House and Senate for a solid, what, 40 years in, in America, just, just dominated by the Democrats. And the Democrats were the party from the South uh, that were pro-racism. Okay, in 1963, uh, the Democrat governor, George Wallace, uh, he's the one who stated that uh, segregation now, segregation forever, okay, and uh, that's the kind of attitude that was existing in the Democrat Party, was this attitude of segregation. Of course, the Democrats were the ones that, that supported all the lynching, and, and they're the ones that created all of the segregation laws, okay, the Democrats. So here's John F. Kennedy, who's a Democrat, uh, but he's from the North, and he has some different kind of ideas. He has some ideas of, no, I don't think so. I think we should actually treat people the way they want to be treated, okay? So if you listen to what he said in his speech, I, I totally agree with him. You could say his speech today, and it would still mean the same. Uh, it was an excellent speech, and uh, it happened on the 11th of June, and this rollback the day before was the 10th of June in 1963, and this was a culmination. It was the day that John F. Kennedy signed the equal... Uh, I think it was called the Equal Pay Act, and it was for uh, paying 
women, okay, no matter your sex, you get paid equally for equal work, okay? And so that was an act that had been kicked around in Congress for a long time and had been shot down. They could never get it through. They could never get it through. And here comes Kennedy, and he gets enough support. So and as a leader, as a true leader in, in service to the, his country, he got enough support and got that thing through Congress, passed through his party, of course, got it passed on his desk. He signs it on the 10th of, of June, 1963. And so with that passed, that was a happy day. Then the next day he steps forward and he brings this message about civil rights. And uh, I think you need to listen to the message because and there's not enough time in this podcast to talk about the whole thing. Um, but an, another, something happened that night after this, you know, this was a nationwide address. And America, they were very much... Uh, uh, he was a very popular president, so I'm sure people were glued to the tubes, and many people were probably pissed at what he was saying, okay? I'm talking about the majority uh, of, of, of Americans, probably, who uh, leaned toward the, the racist ideals of the Democrat Party. Here, the President of the United States is saying, no, you can't tell 10% of the population that they are not allowed to have the same education, and they're not allowed to have the same job opportunities and that they can't do this and that he says no you can't do that you can't be a leader in the world america can't tell the world that we believe in human rights and civil rights if we can't even do that to our own people here in this country and i really like how john f kennedy uh spoke in his speech about uh harlan okay and he's one of the hosses that i presented earlier okay <laughs> justice harlan uh, John Marshall Harlan, who he was the, the lone dissenter in the Plessy versus Ferguson case, and he talked about how the Constitution is blind, and, the, and then Kennedy goes on to say in his speech that race has no place in American life or law. And uh, I think he said law or life. But anyway, I'm going to show you the whole thing at the end of this podcast. So um, because it's better to listen to the man, John F. Kennedy, than this guy... I'm just going to give you him for the end of this podcast. And then next week, I'm going to dive in a little further and go over what else happened in 1963. Okay, well, here's a hint. John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963 in Dallas, Texas. Okay, I, everybody's got their theories. I got my theories. Maybe you got your theories. How about we talk about that in, in, uh, in the next episode of why this man was martyred and I think he was martyred because of what he said on June 11th, 1963. He actually was basically looking at all of his political, supposedly, uh, friends and telling them and lecturing to them, no, this is how it's going to be. And telling them that you're going to put this stuff through Congress, you're going to make the Civil Rights Act happen, and I as president are going to lead you through this effort. Plus, he encouraged everybody to examine their conscience. Okay, he encouraged all Americans to, you can't rely on the law, it has to be within your own house where the answer is going to happen. And man, I'm just getting goosebumps talking about it. I'm going to let you listen to it. This is John F. Kennedy, our 35th president, speaking to America on June 11th, 1963. June 11th, 1963. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This afternoon... Following a series of threats and defiant statements, the presence of Alabama National Guardsmen 
was required on the University of Alabama to carry out the final and unequivocal order of the United States District Court of the Northern District of Alabama. That order called for the admission of two clearly qualified young Alabama residents who happened to have been born Negro. That they were admitted peacefully on the campus is due in good measure to the conduct of the students at the University of Alabama who met uh, their responsibilities in a uh, constructive way. I hope that every American, regardless of where he lives, will stop and examine his conscience about this and other related incidents. This nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds. It was founded on the principle that all men are created equal and that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. Today we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. And when Americans are sent to Vietnam or West Berlin, we do not ask for whites only. It ought to be possible, therefore, for American students of any color to attend any public institution they select without having to be backed up by troops. It ought to be possible for American consumers of any color to receive equal service in places of public accommodation, such as hotels and restaurants and theaters and retail stores, without being forced to resort to demonstrations in the street. And it ought to be possible for American citizens of any color to register and to vote in a free election without interference or fear of reprisal. It ought to be possible, in short, for every American to enjoy the privileges of being American without regard to his race or his color. In short, every American ought to have the right to be treated as he would wish to be treated, as one would wish uh, his children to be treated. But this is not the case. The Negro baby born in America today regardless of the section of the state in which he is born, has about one half as much chance of completing a high school as a white baby, born in the same place on the same day. One third as much chance of completing college. One third as much chance of becoming a professional man. Twice as much chance of becoming unemployed. About one seventh as much chance of earning $10,000 a year a life expectancy which is seven years shorter, and the prospects of earning only half as much. This is not a sectional issue. Difficulties over segregation and discrimination exist in every city, in every state of the Union, producing in many cities a rising tide of discontent that threatens the public safety. Nor is this a partisan issue. In a time of domestic crisis, men of goodwill and generosity should be able to unite regardless of party or politics. This is not even a legal or legislative issue alone. It is better to settle these matters in the courts than on the streets, and new laws are needed at every level. But law alone cannot make men see right. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. 
whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if, in short, he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? Who among us would then be content with the counsels of patience and delay? One hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet, not yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. We preach freedom around the world, and we mean it. And we cherish our freedom here at home. But are we to say to the world, and much more importantly, to each other, that this is a land of the free, except for the Negroes, that we have no second-class citizens, except Negroes, that we have no class or caste system, no ghettos, no master race, except with respect to Negroes. Now the time has come for this nation to fulfill its promise. The events in Birmingham and elsewhere have so increased the cries for equality that no city or state our legislative body can prudently choose to ignore them. The fires of frustration and discord are burning in every city, north and south, where legal remedies are not at hand. Redress is sought in the streets, in demonstrations, parades, and protests, which create tensions and threaten violence and threaten lives. We face, therefore, a moral crisis as a country and a people. It cannot be met by repressive police action. It cannot be left to increase demonstrations in the streets. It cannot be quieted by token moves or talk. It is a time to act in the Congress, in your state and local legislative body, and above all, in all of our daily lives. It is not enough to pin the blame on others, to say this is a problem of one section of the country or another, or deplore the facts that we face a great change is at hand, and our task, our obligation, is to make that revolution, that change, peaceful and constructive for all. Those who do nothing are inviting shame as well as violence. Those who act boldly are recognizing right as well as reality. Next week, I shall ask the Congress of the United States to act, to make a commitment it is not fully made in this century to the proposition that race has no place in American life or law. The federal judiciary has upheld that proposition in a series of forthright cases. The executive branch has adopted that proposition in the conduct of its affairs, including the employment of federal personnel, the use of federal facilities, and the sale of federally financed housing. But there are other necessary measures which only the Congress can provide and they must be provided at this session. The old code of equity law under which we live commands for every wrong 
a remedy. But in too many communities, in too many parts of the country, wrongs are inflicted on Negro citizens, and there are no remedies at law. Unless the Congress acts, their only remedy is the street. I am therefore asking the Congress to enact legislation giving all Americans the right to be served in facilities which are open to the public, hotels, restaurants, theaters, retail stores, and similar establishments. This seems to me to be an elementary right. Its denial is an arbitrary indignity that no American in 1963 should have to endure, but many do. I have recently met with scores of business leaders, urging them to take voluntary action to end this discrimination. And I've been encouraged by their response. And in the last two weeks, over 75 cities have seen progress made in desegregating these kinds of facilities. But many are unwilling to act alone. And for this reason, nationwide legislation is needed if we are to move this problem from the streets to the courts. I'm also asking Congress to authorize the federal government to participate more fully in lawsuits designed to end segregation in public education. We have succeeded in persuading many districts to desegregate voluntarily. Dozens have admitted Negroes without violence. Today, a Negro is attending a state-supported institution in every one of our 50 states. But the pace is very slow. Too many Negro children entering segregated grade schools at the time of the Supreme Court's decision nine years ago Valenta segregated high schools this fall, having suffered a loss which can never be restored. The lack of an adequate education denies the Negro a chance to get a decent job. The orderly implementation of the Supreme Court decision, therefore, cannot be left solely to those who may not have the economic resources to carry the legal, a legal action or who may be subject to harassment. Other features will be also requested including greater protection for the right to vote. But legislation, I repeat, cannot solve this problem alone. It must be solved in the homes of every American, in every community across our country. In this respect, I want to pay tribute to those citizens north and south who've been working in their communities to make life better for all. They are acting not out of sense of legal duty, but out of a sense of human decency. Like our soldiers and sailors in all parts of the world, they are meeting freedom's challenge on the firing line, and I salute them for their honor and their courage. My fellow Americans, this is a problem which faces us all, in every city of the North as well as the South. Today, there are Negroes unemployed two or three times as many compared to whites. Inadequate education, moving into the large cities, unable to find work, Young people, particularly out of work, without hope, deny the equal rights, deny the opportunity to eat at a restaurant or a lunch counter or go to a movie theater, deny the right to a decent education, denied almost today the right to attend a state university even though qualified. It seems to me that these are matters which concern us all, not merely presidents or congressmen or governors, but every citizen of the United States. This is one country. It has become one country because all of us and all the people who came here had an equal chance to develop their talents. We cannot say to 10% of the population that you can't have that right. Your children can't have the chance to develop whatever talents they have. 
that the only way that they are going to get their rights is to go in the street and demonstrate. I think we owe them and we owe ourselves a better country than that. Therefore, I'm asking for your help in making it easier for us to move ahead and to provide the kind of equality of treatment which we would want ourselves. To give a chance for every child to be educated to the limit of his talents. As I've said before, not every child has an equal talent or an equal ability or equal motivation. But they should have the equal right to develop their talent and their ability and their motivation to make something of themselves. We have a right to expect that the Negro community will be responsible, will uphold the law, but they have a right to expect that the law will be fair, that the Constitution will be colorblind, as Justice Harlan said at the turn of the century. This is what we're talking about, and this is a matter which concerns this country and what it stands for. And in meeting it, I ask the support of all of our citizens. Thank you very much. Get up! Four to four. Hard work, work. I go to work and I hit the floor. Hard work, work. 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 All right, guys, that's awesome.